star class uh, as the frozen frozen Christians are coming in slower. So it's cold, that's for sure. So, but it's warm inside. Let's pray, and we're going to talk about. I think this is our seventh lesson on the will of man, and we're going to go to into God's plan a little bit this morning. Father, we thank you for this time that you've allotted for us to come together to to study your word together, to, uh, again, worship you and understand who you are and understand who we are in light of your word. Father, we thank you for this time. We want to make sure we glorify your son and what we do. And as we do this, we do it with as much reverence and thought as we can as we spend time in your word to uh, grasp this wonderful subject about the will of man. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, last week, we kind of stopped off with the three main will, or four wills that we're dealing with. We're talking about the will of God, and in God's ability to be absolute sovereign, he has allowed a challenge to that will, and Satan came along. And we talked a little bit about Satan, and Satan's uh, I want, I guess is the best way to say it, and and had how, how he challenged God's will, and then man, God created man, and both man and woman both challenge God's will. So, um, so well, I want to kind of take a few minutes to introduce where we're going uh, this morning and probably in the next couple of weeks talking about God's sovereign plan. So within the will of God and his sovereign plan, he planned for certain things. And, and we got to understand his character and his characteristics involving those different things, because when people say man has no will, I don't know where they get it from when God has given us uh, hundreds of commands in his Bible. So at this point, we must emphatically state God desires willing submission. And Satan, guess what? Satan also desires willing submission. So not only are God's will and Satan's will banging against each other, but the, but the difference is when God desires a willing uh, submission, it's to enthrone his son, Jesus Christ. It's for the purpose of lifting and exalting Christ. When Satan uh, desires our submission to his will, or his, his bent, I guess is the best way to put it, it's for him to be self-enthroned. And, and therefore, when Satan does that, he puts into man that man now can make his own decisions outside of God. Uh, and there's a, once that happens, um, there's problems that will arise. For Satan has, uh, now let's, let's look at it this way. Does Satan have temporary success many times? And when the answer would be yes, uh, because that's why he's even addressed, I think it's in 1 Thessalonians, this is the man of sin. Because uh, here Satan gets the majority of people to be willing to subject their will to the enthronement of Satan. And what I mean by that, by the enthronement of Satan, is if you're kowtowing to his will and and lifting and allowing him to influence you, uh, he becomes enthroned. So when we talk about this, though, I want I want us to understand because we are going to be very much emphasizing God's will and God's plan this morning. Uh, even though this happens quite often, God the Father is still uh, overall the final. Uh, Terminus, I guess is the best way to put it. And even though there's temporary success in sin and in this world of Satan, uh, God is the final uh, authority. And and when his son returns and, re- and, and comes and rules and reigns, and that will end Satan's temporary challenge to God's authority. So, in other words, there's coming a time Satan's done. And that influence is gone. And all we will have is the will of God. So there's a day coming. Um, and, and again, here's how it works. Satan's tool to his advantage is man's sin nature. God's tool and his advantage is, the, is a, new, a new birth and a new nature he gives man. So there's a struggle. Uh, and that's why in Ephesians it says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. There's, there's a different struggle going on. When we become believers. So let's, for this morning, turn to Romans chapter 6. And I believe we were here uh, a couple of weeks ago. I'm just going to use this again as a jumping point. Romans chapter 6. So Satan is appealing to the sin nature, uh, or the bent of man, to lean towards... Um, and, and understand, I'm not saying if you're sinning, you're satanic. 
but that's influenced influenced by Satan, and um, and we got to look at where we're at as believers, and I think it's important for us to understand what the Bible says. And in Romans chapter six, verse twelve, it says, "Therefore, um, when there's a negative command in the Bible, uh, in 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 the Greek, the best way to read it is stop doing something." So when it says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, and uh, that you should obey its lust, what Paul is actually saying is stop doing this. Now, how do you do that? Well, it's real easy. Ready for this? I'm going to give you the easiest way not to allow the sin nature to rule. Stop. Just stop. So many people say, confess and don't do it. Uh, Do this and do that. There's no real mechanic, because what Paul is saying here in this chapter is, if you're a believer, you have the power in you to stop. Uh, It's not often easy. Uh, You know, everybody wants to say, oh, it's so easy. It's not easy, but you can stop, because Paul says it very definitively here. He spent... uh, Let's see, verse, verses 1 through 11 giving you an understanding, and then he comes to a conclusion. He says, therefore, stop letting the sin, or the sin nature, uh, in other words, make a choice. So here's the free will of man, to make a choice uh, that you don't let sin reign. How do you let sin reign? That means just do it. Allow that sin to uh, be repetitious, or whatever it might be. Uh, and here's how verse 13 helps. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as an instrument for unrighteousness. But, so here's the helper. Instead of that, or here's what you've been doing. Stop doing that. But instead of that, present yourselves to God as alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. God, use me. God, help me with this situation. God, you have your spirit within me. Help me to stop this. I am going to make a, uh, what? Not a New Year's resolution, but I'm going to be determined that the who I am can stop this. Now, is it hard? Well, oftentimes it is difficult because Paul goes in chapter 7, I do the things I do not want to do. So there is a struggle, but we have the ability not to do it. And when we do allow sin nature to rule, um, the best way to say this is we come under Satan's influence. Uh, So Satan bypasses the cross... To appeal to the sin nature. And you look at life and things that are going on in life often. And sometimes we become anesthetized to the things that Satan uses to get us away from the word. And keep us from uh, doing things that God wants us to do. And if we went through the New Testament, we could see a litany of things God wants us to do. And we so easily don't. Uh, And again, Satan's bent is to lift himself up to a place of authority, a place of enthronement. So let's talk about the will of God. First of all, let's start off with a premise, and as we work through this, uh, it's going to be a lot of not looking in the Bible, but kind of cognizantly thinking through things, since I've already laid the groundwork for a lot of what we where we've gone. First of all, here's the premise I'm going to start, or the theorem, I don't know how you want to do it mathematically, this God's will, we're going to talk about the will of God. His will is absolute, and we refer to it as sovereignty. So when we talk about the will of God, we say our God is sovereign. I think a better way to say it is God is absolute sovereign. There's no uh, possibility for us to line him up with some uh, earthly sovereign or king and say that's only temporary. God is the absolute sovereign of all the universe. And when we talk about God's will, God's will has to line up with his sovereignty. And so when we talk, let's say, let's say we're going to talk about any of God's characteristics. There's not one of God's characteristics that are bigger or better or more predominant than another one. A lot to, in, a lot in today's Christian uh, society, Christian uh, world, I guess, is the best way to say it. Always want to talk about what? God's love, right? And we hear it, not there's anything wrong with that, but we hear it ad nauseum. But what happens is that they lift God's love up above any of his other attributes. So they don't talk about things like how, what God will do to the sinner and what happens if you're not a believer and therefore hell is erased from the conversation and because God is love. And then if you get too crazy about it, you could become a uh, universalist because God loves everyone. Therefore, no one's ever going to go to hell because God what? God loves. 
well, what about God's justice, which demands payment for sin? You know, so that, that's eradicated. So you have many people like that. So the basic statement we have to begin this kind of thinking, and that's where we're going to go, with this understanding of the will of God, within the understanding of this class, is the will. we're talking about the will of man. But we can't talk about the will of man without the will of God. So the basic statement is God is the supreme person in the universe, and there is only God and God alone. In other words, there's nothing... Uh, a buffer zone between that. When God says, I am a jealous God, there's no other God before me, um, so on and so forth. We studied a little bit of it in uh, Isaiah last week or the week before. Um, when we talk about God's supremacy, I don't know if we can even put it on a chart. Man versus God's supremacy. God is so much grander. So when we talk about God's supremacy, God's sovereignty, God's will, we have to talk about it within the terms that we need to understand. So let me give you some terms. Let's talk about the attributes of God. Okay, attributes of God. So if you write notes, attributes of God equals the essence of God, which equals the characteristics of God. Just different ways of saying the same thing. So if you're going to talk about God, what is God like? Right? What is, if you're going to understand God's will, you understand what God is like. Um, when we talk about God's attributes or, or his essence, it's the sum total of all of his characteristics uh, that comprise his person as revealed in the word. And this makes God God. In other words, when we talk about God, you can't say God is this. And that's why I try to get rid of verbs when we talk about God. God is sovereign, God is love, God is... Because it's not like God is becoming or God is being. He's always that. So when we talk about certain things... For instance, if you're in the book of uh, Isaiah, like we've been on Wednesday nights, you're going to hear a lot about God's judgment, God's justice. Well, where's God's love? It's still there. It's still in the conversation. Where's God's holiness? Where's God's grace? Where's still in the conversation. We're not taking... We're just getting a vignette or... or, or, or an understanding of what God will do in judgment. But he still loves, and that's still in the, in, the, in the conversation. So, let's just do this. Go to Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29. And I'm going to use this verse for a pivot point a little bit this morning. Deuteronomy 29. And this will give us our, our two... Here's what we're doing. We're looking at the Bible, and does the Bible tell us everything? For instance, there's a, there's a whole section in the Bible on what we could, would call uh, uh, law, what we would call uh, kind of social laws or civil laws, okay? Um, in, in college, you, you would take a, a class on, on law, and it would be a law that you use for every day, we, we, you know, the common law that we would have. And you would talk about things like, is there a law to leash, leash your dog? And we say, yeah, there's dog leash laws. Do you know that? Tulsa has dog leash law. Tulsa also has what? Cat leash laws. And everybody doesn't know that because cats are what? Like free to roam your neighborhood. But according to the law, there's a law against that. Now, would you find a law about leash laws in the Bible? No, because it's not relevant to the conversation. So there's laws that are outside the Bible, and God's only going to tell us things that are relevant to a relationship to him. Okay? So look at Deuteronomy 29, 29. And this will kind of give us a, turning, uh, a stepping stone to where I want to go a little bit this morning in the discussion we're having about the will of God. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The secret things belong... To the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of the law. So there's here. Here we're talking about the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness, and there's things God keeps secret. There's things we don't know. Do you ever have a conversation with somebody? And I usually do this. I don't know how many times a month. I think I had one with James a little bit. Same similar conversation. You know, if I could ask God a question, I'd really want to know the answer to this, because as far as I'm concerned, God's keeping a secret. You know, there's things we don't know, and we say, why does God do that? Well, that's a secret thing. Now, it's not saying it's not a secret you should know, but maybe he's doing it for a reason that you'll discover at some point. But, however, when God has revealed something, there's a stage called 
accountability or responsibility. So when we look at, wow, I did that. Okay, so since that rang like that, you all can turn your cell phones off because I didn't. That's crazy. I didn't even know it was in my pocket. Okay, it's off. It says shutting down. So, so there. So for instance, God has has secret hidden hidden things or concealed things. If we're talking about the, for instance, let's just talk about something that is hidden. In the Old Testament, can you find any reference to the church or the body of Christ? No. There is zero about the body of Christ. So if somebody says, well, Israel in the Old Testament is the church. That's ridiculous because it's a mystery in the Old Testament. God later reveals that. But there are other things God doesn't reveal. So um, so when we talk about those hidden and secret things, uh, sometimes that even involves philosophy, right? Philosophy says, this I want to know this about God, and God says, that's not important, that's not revealed. And there's things when you read in Scripture, you say, why didn't God tell us this part? Um, well, for instance, does anybody know how or when angels were created? No, but obviously they had to be what? Created because God, there was nothing before creation except God. God always was, always will be, and we'll never, there's never a time he won't be. But we can't say that about angels. But God did create them then. When? Because when I look at the biblical account, there's nothing about angelic uh, period of creation. But we know they are his creatures because they're called such so, such in Revelation. So when we, we have revealed truth, let's go back, to, or revealed understanding from God, um, the Bible addresses the necessary questions for life and godliness. Let's put it that way. When you look at the Bible, you should be reading it for what God has meant it for us, for life, especially eternal life, and for godliness. Um, but it doesn't answer every question, and it doesn't every, answer every question that, that we could possibly come up with and thinking. Uh, and here's, here's, here's give you kind of an instance so you can know where we're going. So the Bible doesn't answer every question. So man has questions. So they come in and they come up with, the Hebrews come up with oral law. And oral law will address certain things that the Bible didn't address. So let me ask you a question. It's very simple. The Bible says on the seventh day you shall not work. Right? How would you define work? See, you got to come up with something. And God says don't do this. And he leaves it up to your common sense to say what are you doing? And why are you doing it? Um, and then Jesus has problems many times with the Sadducees and the Pharisees in the New Testament because he's doing things on the Sabbath. And he even says, I think in one instance, if you had, I think it was an oxen uh, off the side of the road stuck in a thicket, would you not rescue him on the Sabbath? And most people would say what? We're humane. We would do that. Okay? So why wouldn't, why can't I, Jesus would say, why can't I heal on the Sabbath? Isn't that the humane thing to do? What does the Sabbath have to do with Oh, you can't work. Well, who's defining that? So there's a whole section in the Torah, I mean, not the, the Torah, the Talmud, uh, that gives you what work is. What work is. And we've done it. I've told you a few things like that before. But here's what we got to look at. When we talk about Scripture, the 66 books we have, that's given to us from God, and there's an accountability, a responsibility. So I would look around the room and say, how many of you got the 66 books nailed down and understand them? And we would say, well, yeah, we're working on it. Maybe six books, maybe a book, maybe whatever amount of books that you're familiar with. You know, uh, we had a discussion the other day, me and a gentleman, about Second John. How many of you really are familiar with Second John? It's one of the shortest books in the Bible. Would you say we haven't really discussed a lot in Second John lately, have we? You know, how relevant is it? Well, it's got to be relevant. It's one of the 66 books. So God gave us all these for life and godliness. Uh, but yet the Bible doesn't answer every question, but does answer what the necessities that we have to have to have a relationship with God. And, and, and not only to have a, a relationship with God, but to have the hope that God gives within the framework of life. So if you're hopeless and lifeless, maybe you should go to the Bible and look for that. But if you're looking about an instance you had with a cousin, and you don't know what to do about that life situation, don't try to find a verse for it. Because you're going to be shoving square pegs into round holes. You know, Somebody once said, you know, I have a problem with you. I don't know if you've ever had a problem with me, but people have. And they said, I have a problem with you. I need to rectify it before I can make my offering. 
The what? What are you talking about? Put the money in the box and walk out. I don't care. What are you talking about? Because they took something from the New Testament that's referring that we will address soon, that's in the Sermon on the Mount, and said, you know, if we don't do this, we're not right with God. We can't make an offer. What? Be very careful. Uh, yes, we should have great human relations, and God will d- tell us that, but not everything has an answer. There's sometimes in life you may not have a relationship with somebody, and you don't know why. Just got to move on. So let's talk about revealed truth for a minute. I mean unrevealed truth. Let's go that way. Let's start with unrevealed truth, uh, and then we'll go to revealed truth. I think it's a much grander picture of revealed truth. Um, so, let's talk about f- philosophy versus theology. I think it's important because in today's venue of Christianity or Christendom, dumb, uh, Christendom that we have, philosophy's been elevated. I don't know if you know that to a higher place than theology. Okay, and I think that's important because in Jesus' time, tradition was elevated higher than theology. So every, I, th- I would say this, many generations have had their own what they put as significant. The Word of God should always have its priority. With me? Okay, so let's talk about philosophy for a minute. Uh, what makes philosophy, biblical philosophy, philosophy? Okay, let's, I guess that's the best way to ask that question, first of all. Uh, it may be a legitimate question that the Bible can't answer. I think that's part of it. It may be a legitimate question, but the Bible can't answer it. And we can come up with a lot of those, and we're going to have to come up with a philosophical answer to fill that gap because we don't have a verse that will plug in. So that becomes philosophy. Uh, it, it, it becomes, so, and philosophy is also a question without an absolute answer. Kind of get what I'm saying? And we can all have, this is my opinion in Scripture. And there's nothing wrong with that. You can have an opinion, but that becomes a philosophical address. You understand? And think about the things people lift up and address today. And what are they addressing? The questions the Bible doesn't answer because they want to do what? They want to make everything applicable for your life and what's happening in your life. So if we're talking about finances or we're talking about marriage or we're talking about whatever, we want to find things and they make verses say it because they're answering a philosophical question. You know, what if my wife threw the best china at me and it missed? What verse covers that? And there's not a verse in there that says duck. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, there's things in here that we want to go to the Bible to find a philosophical. Even when there's a theological gap, we want to fill it with something. And that still becomes, even though there's maybe theology on both sides, the middle to fill that gap becomes f- philosophical. Okay? Um and I want to understand that. Uh, so, what's the th- what's the difference in theological? Theological, basically, is a question you can find an answer for in the Word of God that there's a verse to plug in. You can find a theological... Now, there's different kinds of theological answers. For instance, you may find a verse that personally helps you through your day, and that becomes your... Th- and it's a verse there... And it's theology, and you say, that helps me. That becomes your personal theology. Okay? And if we're teaching a class on Christology, the study of Christ, and we find certain verses that tell us who the Christ, who the Messiah is, that becomes a theological class. Okay? But there is a difference between what we would call a systematic theology, a practical theology, which is personal, those kind of... But we're finding it in, the, in Scripture. Okay, so be very careful. If somebody's presenting a, a theology and they can't find a verse for it. That make sure you change it to a philosophy, not a theology. Uh, second of all, the idea with theology is that there is an absolute answer that's possible because Scripture gives us an absolute answer. And sometimes here's the problem: people will get the absolute answer but don't like what the answer. Can't handle the answer. Does it really say that? Well, it says that. Okay? Uh, and so we got to be... Uh, so let me ask you a question. Right now, we know evil exists in the world. Right? Everybody knows it exists. Can anybody find me a Bible verse for how evil came into existence? And there's not one. Well, Satan did. Well, what made Satan evil? Where did it come from? Well, he rebelled against God. Yes. But... 
What caused that? He just made it. Yes, he had a, a choice, a chooser to make that option. But there's no verse that says, here's how evil came in the world. Here's another question. I love this question. How many of you ever heard, you know, I'll believe the Bible if you can tell me who's Cain's wife. Where did Cain get his wife? Because we know Cain killed his brother and God, basically his judgment was to live on earth separated from anything godly. Okay? Who's Cain? And Cain did uh, produce a line, an offspring. Who's, where did he get his wife? Well, the obvious answer is only what? It had to be one of Adam and Eve's children. But the Bible doesn't tell us. So that's still, even if we said that, it becomes a philosophical question. Well, it's, now let's kind of do this. Um, it's not playing a game, but it's kind of saying, here's how we can understand it's not philosophical. Does that change your life and godliness if I told you who Cain's wife was? You know, if I told you it was Jezebel the first, it doesn't change your theology. You know, for, it doesn't give you anything for life and godliness. Rick? Well, I think that was uh, illustrated. I don't know if it was initiated. It was illustrated. In other words, we have a really good illustration of what evil will do. And we'll, we'll kind of address that when we deal with Matthew, because we're going to get into the first of what Jesus deals with, thou shalt not murder. So we'll talk about that a little bit. But I think it was just an illustration of what happens in, in when sin is left unchecked and how it uh, escalates to that. Because it didn't, it didn't start out where Cain murdered Abel. There was something that led up to that. You understand? And I think the process of evil that was introduced by who and how, I don't know, you could see how it escalates, you know, and, and, and that's the kind of picture there. But we still don't know where it began, how it began. And a lot of people have attributed to God, and God says he doesn't do that. He's not a tempter of that, you know. So we can't attribute evil to God, but it came from somewhere. And we, want, and we can philosophically attach it to Satan. I don't have a, but it's philosophical, it's not theological. You understand? There's nothing wrong with us saying, you know, my opinion, it, it's roots in Satan, and Satan propagated those roots. But I can't find a verse for that. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? We're trying to be people to book, um, and at the end of the day, whether Satan produced evil or not, it doesn't affect my life and godliness. Right? How about where Cain got his wife? doesn't affect my godliness or my life. You know, as if, 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 here's what it comes about. God didn't have a separate creation because he would have told us about that. That's why when people think there's life on other planets, which is a philosophical question, right? Is there life on other planets? Anybody know? My answer is no, emphatically. Because to me, God told us what he did with human life here. Why would he do it somewhere else? Does he have God have a plan of salvation on Mars? You know, kind of... You understand what I'm saying? Or did God create a, you know, on Theron 3, did he create a life source that's never fallen, never done anything wrong, and don't need a savior? And one day they'll be here in spaceships. That's crazy. Do you understand? It's fun for science fiction fans, but it's not biblical. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I want to say, here we can find it in the verse. Let's, let's major on, major on the majors. Okay, don't major on things that are philosophical questions. Because we're dealing with, how do we know the will of God? It's in the Word of God. Anything outside of that doesn't plug in well, because I don't know what it is. You understand? We're good on that so far? So let's talk about revealed truth. When we talk about revealed truth, the Word of God, revelation, however you want to say it, revelation uh, brings about a responsibility. So if you have the Bible which you all should have by now, right? And you have the Word of God, and the Word of God addresses certain things. God's, God's requiring of you to respond in a positive manner to the revealed truth that helps us. Here's what it does. It helps us understand the will of God and helps us to make quality decisions, which helps us with the will of man. Okay? If I look at unrevealed truth, how's that going to help the quality of your decisions if you're guessing? Kind of get what I'm saying now? I mean, how many of you have seen a red, uh, let's go stop sign. Stop sign. Stop. You came to church this morning, you saw a stop sign. Okay? You saw a stop sign. Did the stop sign say slow down, then go? Which we used to call what? A California roll? Is they still call it that, Bobby? California roll. It doesn't say that. It says what? Stop. We stopped 40 feet after the stop sign? I mean, that is a choice, right? You stop 40 feet before the stop sign, or do you stop 
what is the, the, the white line that's before? You stop. And a stop is a, a stop, right? I mean, we all understand what that means. Okay? So that's kind of a clear understanding. So the Bible is the same thing. The Bible says certain things. It says that. How you respond to that is your uh, ability to respond and what you want to do. And basically, basically you're asking the question in life, who's in charge? So if God says certain things and you say, well, I don't know how I, I feel about that. It doesn't, he's not asking you. He's saying, how are you responding to truth and who is in charge? That's the picture. Got it so far? So let's go to First Chronicles. First Chronicles 29. I'm going to go to a few verses and look at some things. We'll go, uh, First Chronicles, First Chronicles, twenty-nine, verse ten. Okay, you there? So David blessed the Lord in the sight of the assembly, and David said, Blessed art thou, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and on earth, on the earth, thine is the dominion, O Lord, and thou dost exalt thyself as head over all. Now that's theology. What's it telling you about God? Telling you a bunch of things about God and just David's little vignette he's giving you about God. And the question basically comes from this verse, and we're going to ask you to go to a couple more verses. What does it mean that God is the supreme person of the universe? What does it mean? And we can go back and say it means he has the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in, he- in the heavens and on the earth, thine is the mid- dominion, O Lord, and thou dost exalt thyself as head over all. There is nothing above God. God is God. And everything can be attributed to him and who he is. And that's a really good verse. Go to Psalm 86. I mean, sorry, Psalm 82, verse 6. Psalm 82, verse 6. God's addressing in this psalm the, the earthly judges okay, of this time. Verse 5 says, let's just start in verse 5. Thou, they did not know, nor do, uh, do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the fountains of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You're just giving, uh, God has given them authority as judges. Okay, in this case, the word gods is used. They're not uh, idol, uh, idols, they're gods. Okay, on earth they have a rule. Um, and all of you are sons of the Most High. In other words, you're given your authority on earth because God gave it to you, but the supreme authority is what? The Most High God. So see the, see the difference of, uh, of authority levels? Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 13. Hebrews 6.13. Now, there's terms in here which are very interesting in Hebrews about God, and I think we need to be aware of them. Verse 13 says, uh, for when, how many have something different? Mine says, for when God made his promise to Abraham. For when? Anybody have anything different? Uh, I think it's better read, and if I'm not mistaken, the Greek would reflect this, for after God made the promise to Abraham. So it's talking about what followed that promise. So God makes a promise with Abraham. And after that, what happened, what follows, since he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. In other words, um, you ever, you ever, uh, kids are really good at this, and I think most of us have done that. I swear to God, I swear I'm telling the whole truth, nothing, but so I swear to God, I, uh, you know, those kind of things, and they, then they cross their fingers and put it I swear to God. It's because we're swearing on the highest. You know, we're making an oath. How would you make an oath? Most of us, if you've ever been to court, I don't think they do it in courts anymore. I've been to in court where they used to put their hand on, on the Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth. And you're making an oath based upon... They don't do that anymore? Really? Oh, they just have you raise your hand and swear on what? You just promise. I promise. That's going to work good because you could promise anything. But if you notice, they used to say, I, you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Because why? Because there's loopholes in that law. If you say, well, I swear to tell the truth, uh, and then you're in your head, you're saying, my truth. 
you know, there are variables there. So they've got to, they've got to say certain things. But when we talk about God, God is making an oath on himself. So he's swearing that he, by his very attributes, he's going to keep this promise. So just for sake of conversation, if God's got a promise to Abraham, which comes way back in Genesis, first book of the Bible, right? God's got a promise and hasn't kept it yet. Is his oath good? Because he's sworn himself. That means, yeah, his oath is good because he's still got to do what? Keep his promise. That means there's still more to come as far as the Abrahamic promise is concerned. Okay, let's, let's just talk the, about this now. We looked at three verses or, or sets of verses that have to do with God being the supreme one over the universe. And the question I would ask now, God is a supreme person of the universe from these verses, but why? What makes him so supreme? Okay? Now, I, as you know, the worst thing as a pastor, I find, is to make an analogy that's pretty horrible. So, no matter what I do, when, we're, when I'm making some of these analogies, uh, it's, it's pretty horrible, but I think you'll get the picture. First of all, God's got marks of personality. God's got marks of personality. He's a person. So, here's real easy. If you were to go outside in the yard today and pick up a rock, what makes you different from the rock? Okay, that's what makes God different. He has a personality. That rock is going to do what? Nothing. What was it? 60s, 70s, 80s? When would it come out? Pet rocks. Remember the pet rock? You must have had one the way you're laughing. I had one. It was on my dash. I called him Ernie. <laughs> but remember, that was a big fad for a while. Pet rocks, right? But what what made God di- what makes God different from a rock? What makes you different from a rock? God's got a personality, and when we talk about personality, we understand personhood because we understand people either irritate us sometimes or because of their personalities. Okay. Second of all, God is self-aware. God is self-aware, and I would, and my analogy to this is men and dogs. Um, I don't know, and I can't get into it. Some of you. Uh, PETA people afterwards will come up to me and tell me I'm crazy, but I don't think a dog's aware of himself. He doesn't look in the mirror and say, dang, I could use a haircut. I mean, it just, it, do, it just doesn't happen. You know, I, I was sitting on the couch last night watching the football games and I don't think one time my dog ever said, yeah! Yeah! Never, never reacted. And she's sitting right next to me. I thought at least she'd get something contagious and ears would go up or something. Nothing! There's no, there's no awareness of her surroundings. And I often wonder how much pain does an animal feel when something happens? You know, it's horrible. Uh, ever been bitten by a mosquito? And it just drives you nuts and you go, you know? Um, and animals are bitten all the time by things and only once in a while does it, you know, you say, man, that must have a flea or something. But it doesn't walk around saying, you know, you could help me and give me something for this itch. It doesn't do those things. Third thing, uh, God has rational capacity. We think, rationally, hopefully, sometimes, we have rational thoughts. And when we talk about the image of God, God therefore has rational thinking. God, God thinks things in a rational manner. And sometimes people become irrational. God never acts in an irrational manner. But God does think things through. And when we talk about things... God has thought things through. Fourthly, God has emotions. Uh, go back to that rock again. You ever see a rock smile? You ever see a rock laugh or cry? Or, you know, when Jesus was on earth, one of the greatest things he did, he, he, as a human, he showed his godly emotions. He wept. And you say, why did he weep? He wept over people's spiritual relationship to him. It was horrible. And it, it had to break him, his heart. So God is Jesus is both man and deity, so we can see that. But God says plenty of places. God has an emotions in the old, especially in the Old Testament. God has volitional options. In other words, God can choose, but God's always going to choose perfectly. Okay, so God has a perfect chooser. So the, let's review the four things that makes that makes God the supreme person in the universe. First of all, He has marks of personality. He is self-aware. He has rational capacity, he has emotions, and he has volitional options. He has a chooser, I think is the best way you put it. Now, let's talk about just a few things. Let's expand on on a couple of ideas here. God is personal. How many times in the Bible can you find God having conversations with people? Conversations that require the person to make a decision 
and think on something. How many times have you seen in the Bible, thus saith the Lord? Who's the Lord speaking to? He's usually, except a couple of times in Scripture, talking, like, let us make man in our image. Obviously, he's talking to the Godhead. I don't want to say himself because that makes it sound a little irrational. Uh, but he's talking within the Godhead. But there's times that God is talking with a prophet. Talking, How many times did he talk with Moses? Uh, Abraham, he, he, since we talked about Abraham before, he makes a, he forms a covenant with Abraham, gives Abraham instructions to, well, it was Abram at the time, gives Abram instructions to follow, and Abram understands the parameters of this covenant or contract God is making, or agreement, however you want to put it, uh, that he has with him. Abraham also argues and barters with God, and God allows that. Right? Um, we get the terminology which is horrible because everybody does it. It drives me nuts. Oh, Jews are cheap, so they they make they barter with God. Well, Abraham, just so you know, Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation, um, but it was a, a common practice to get the best you could for your family. Um, and when he barters, you know, if you find 50 good people, if you find 40 good people, well, God knew how many people were in that city, and he knew it was, it was cities, and he knew he'd destroy them, but... Uh, there's nothing wrong with bartering. Do it, people. You'll be happier for it. <laughs> okay? Um, but Abraham uh, argued with God over, over that, and God allowed that. Uh, let's talk about how God is supreme just by his name. El Elyon. E-L, E-L, E-L-Y-O-N. E-L is L, and Elion, E-L-Y-O-N, is the name for God which, suppress, which expresses his supreme sovereignty over the universe. He's the El Elion. El means, everybody know what El is? E-L? God. It's God. It's God. So if you see the name Daniel, E-L means something that has something to do with God. Ezekiel has something to do with God. Because it's got God in their name. Hebrew name. El Elion means God most high. So if you were translating it, you say El Elyon was God Most High, uh, which makes him, according to verse we looked at previously, the uh, possessor of heaven and earth. Not only did he make it, create it from nothing, he owns it. Isn't that kind of cool? If you're an owner of something, what, what is the requirement of being an owner? Care and provision for that. So when you look up at the stars tonight, realize God has guidance in, the, in them so that he knows exactly where they are and he's protecting them and making sure they shine and they're held up there. Uh, the first time this word appears is in, in Genesis chapter 14, this phrase, El Elyon, when uh, Melchizedek visits with Abram and Abram refers to, uh, he's the priest of the Most High God. That's what Melchizedek is. We're not teaching about that this morning, uh, whether it's a Christology or whether it's a real person. It's irrelevant for the conversation we're having, but we're, we're seeing that it, it's been around from the beginning of the Bible, this title for God. The practical side of this word El Elyon, if my, if my God is the God of the universe, the supreme ruler, um, the God most high, if that's who we say our God is, just think about this. Uh, what do I need? What does? What do I need from Him? Or what, and what does He need from me? What is our relationship? If God is everything, you with me? Because I think this is important questions to ask. Because it's not philosophy. We can find theology behind that question. Okay, what's needed in that relationship? So go to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. Remember, what we're talking about is the will of God, who God is, because if he has a will, how do we respond to God? What is our responsibility to God in this, in this relationship? And in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, it says this, when the, most, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance... When he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the sons of Israel. So one of the things we see about God and the responsibilities, God is a God over nations. And he sets the boundaries up. And in this case, specifically, he did so because it was involving where Israel would be 
in the continental chart, I guess is the best way to say. Could God have put Israel in part of the America's coastline or something? He sure could have. But God put Israel exactly where Israel has always been. Israel's never changed its locale. Uh, it's changed leadership many times. But we see this supremacy of God over his creation. Go to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Daniel Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. Uh, we're not going to get into the what's going on in Daniel. I just want to see the reference to the Most High God. Uh, this Verse 17 says, This sentence is by decree of the angelic watchers. The decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that in order that the living may know that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind who's in charge now remember that what's going on at this time babylon has taken over israel they've brought in the noblest of kids um, i don't know who daniel uh, uh shadrach and abednego who's with their parents but i can only assume they were some nobility in there because they took the noblest of the kids I assume most of them were between 13 and 16, maybe 17, uh, and they were uh, in, integrating them into their society by re, by reteaching them their Chaldean ways. And the struggle that was going on, we could still see that no matter what was happening, Daniel and everyone knew that God was still in charge. When chaos and everything happens in your life and you say, where's God? God, Daniel's answer was, God's in charge. So the question should never be, where is God? The answer should be, we know God's in charge. Even though it's chaos and craziness around us, we know God's in charge. Go to, let your eyes wander over to chapter 5, verse 18. About a page and a half over. Yes? Uh, Daniel 4.17. As a matter of fact, we got a... We, uh, okay. Well, we could go to verse 24 in the same chapter. We'll go back. It's chapter 5, verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 18 says this. It says, O king... Again, Daniel's talking to Nebuchadnezzar. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Okay, this is not... This is talking to uh, uh, um, Belshazzar. Belshazzar. Um, but so here's what's happening. God has allowed Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar at that time to rule. Isn't that interesting? Um, I know this boggles my mind. It should boggle your mind. I don't have a problem with this. But God allows every nation's ruler to rule, no matter who it is. From the beginning of time to the end of time, you say, well, God allowed Stalin? Yes. God allowed Hitler? Yes. God gave him a limited ability. Why? That's philosophy. Do you understand the difference? Theology says God allows that, and, and at this point, to Nebuchadnezzar was granted sovereignty, basically rulership over over the limited uh, uh, domain he had. So he's given sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty. So he allowed that to Nebuchadnezzar, who later ended up eating grass like an animal because he was kind of crazy for a while. Okay, but God. And you could look at this and say, how many nations had crazy leaders? Okay, we could probably do a whole book on crazy nation, national leaders, right? Uh, Idi Amin was per, pretty much up there, right? Saddam Hussein, that, well, that's why he was nicknamed Saddam Insane, I think. Um, but you have all these things, but God is uh, the one who establishes these rules and regulations because God is the supreme over everything and why he's doing this is not always answered, but God is doing this. And so if we look at a ruler over a nation and say, oh, I don't know how God's letting this go and not in charge and God's just letting things happen and it's randomly going on. No, he's not. No, God's in charge. And again, it comes back, we want answers and we want whys. No, that's philosophy. Do you understand? And that's hard, because I want answers too. I'm just like you. I'm going, Why did you allow that? And, and we can come up with some possibilities, why God allowed so-and-so to rule and reign, but we can't unless we can find a Bible verse for it. It's still philosophy. Kind of get where I'm going with that? So when we say, who rules the universe? 
I think uh, we, this would be a good place to end. Go to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. I'm sorry, Psalm 103. I don't know why I said 1. Psalm 103. Again, what we're looking at now, here's a picture. Here's a verse that will give you what? we got a verse. Verses give us what? Theology. And we got to say what? This is what the verse says. Do we, how do we respond to it? Do we believe it? Do we not believe it? How do we put it into our personal file and say, I don't get this, but it is? Because Psalm 103, verse 19 says something very clearly. It says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. You believe that, yes or no? Okay? So the Lord has his throne in heaven. Now, for those of you that are naysayers, it's not David's throne, it's his throne. Because somebody will say, well, Jesus rules on David's throne in heaven. No, it says it's God's throne. The next part of the verse is very important. It says, and his sovereignty rules over some. Okay, it rules over all. Now, rules over what? Well, the, I don't like the Communist Party. I don't like Sharia law. I don't like this and that. And the, well, that's fine, but God's still in charge. At the end of the day, God is in rule over all. We don't understand his allowance for certain things, but he allows you to challenge his will, and he hasn't exterminated you yet. So God is letting his plan carry out, but God is still in charge. And how would that make the nightly news? Two things should make the nightly news. People do these things because they're sinners, and sinners deserve the penalty of death, and God's in charge of everything. Grace and peace, news over. And that would be an interesting twist on things because we look at news and say, everything is out of control when they're not. God's in control. Isn't that cool? Because why? I got that from the Bible. I have theology to prove it. I'm not thinking it. It's here. I don't know what to do with it sometimes because I say, God, if you're in charge, can't you fry that country? That's what I'm thinking. Uh, let's pray and we'll... we'll pick up here next week. Father, we thank you for this time and your word. Again, a hard thing to grasp that you're a God who reveals who you are to us so that we can have a better relationship with you and with each other. And Father, help us to be theological. Help us to spend time in the word. Help us to get an understanding out of your text and not to be constantly philosophical and, and chasing rabbits we can't, we can't hunt down. Father, help us again to be uh, consistent with our theology. In Jesus' name, amen.